times and you've um, found out probably something about your ancestors, maybe even some interesting stories that uh, are worthy or not worthy of publication, I don't know. Also, some of you will probably know that my background is in history and uh, as a historian I would really encourage you to research your family tree pretty much because you'll make a whole lot of interesting connections, you'll probably find out a bit more about your backstory and it might even explain a little bit about why the way you are who you are. But I, I do want to give you some advice that genealogists also give. And uh, they say this, don't shake the family tree too hard, <clears throat> you might get more nuts than you bargained for. And um, if you're like, well, I can't think of any nuts in my family, chances are... It's probably you. So I'm not going to track through your personal family uh, history, your family tree today, but what I, what I am going to do a little bit of is trace the heritage that all of us have just simply by our presence here this morning. And I'm going to share with you a little bit about the history of the New Zealand Baptist Church. So Alexandra Baptist Church is part of this family, and so you might be interested to know that the first Baptist church in New Zealand was founded in Nelson, Sonny Nelson, in 1851. That's pretty early on, right? Like 11 years after the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. And so over the next three decades, uh, Baptist churches were planted all around uh, New Zealand, all across the country. So by the 1880s, there was 22 Baptist churches spread across from top to bottom, north to south. And a significant number of those 22 were in Otago and Southland. And you'll see why that's really important um, in a few minutes. So in the 1880s, there was a couple of two really significant developments. First one was this. In 1882, all of those 22 Baptist churches joined together to form the Baptist Union of New Zealand. Now essentially that was a collective, an agreement that those Baptist churches uh, were willing to work together for the greater good, for the common good. Now, interestingly, if you fast forward 140 years, you need to know that the Baptist Union of New Zealand is still in existence and it's still pumping. Uh, at the most recent census, not this year but the one before, there was 40,000 people who uh, registered that they were Baptist by religious affiliation uh, and over 250 faith communities are now part of the Baptist Union of New Zealand. And we, Alexandra Baptist Church, are part of that, right? So that's partly where we fit in the story. But there was another really important development in the 1880s, and it was the establishment of the New Zealand Baptist Missionary Society, established 1885. So what happened was, in that year, 25 uh, delegates from the Baptist churches across the country met together, and they agreed to pursue the task of global missions. Now, you need to know this was a really, this was a big call. So you've got to appreciate that there's just a handful of Baptist churches spread across the country. And, and according to the 1881 census, there was only 2,600 Baptist members. So that's not much compared to you know, the rest of the population. As well as that, each of the churches were struggling to afford a pastor, struggling to maintain their buildings. They'd also made a commitment to support a mission to Māori in Rotorua, as well as a separate mission on the west coast of the South Island. So they're really well kind of, kind of stretched. But despite these challenges, they believed that it was the call of every Christian to share the message of Jesus to the world. And so, trusting that God would provide all that they needed, they committed to pursuing 
to have a global influence for the gospel. Now, this is where it gets quite interesting. So according to the record, this is the purpose of what the New Zealand Baptist Missionary Society was all about. The general purpose of the New Zealand Baptist Missionary Society is to enable churches from the Baptist Union of New Zealand to fulfill the Great Commission of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 28, and those areas of the world to which he may direct. Now, I want you to see something here. I've made it really obvious because I've highlighted it in bold. But they're centering their plans on the Great Commission. Now, usually, if a person or an idea or a topic or a task is referred to as great, it's normally pretty important. There's normally some sort of significance, something substantial about it, some, something that's really valuable about that thing. And that is true for the Great Commission. In fact, it's, it's more than an idea. It's, it's an important idea. It's more than an idea. It's actually a mandate or a mission for every Christian. And so you'd think that if this call was for every Christian, it would be pretty well known, right? Well, let me just share with you some stats from a, a survey that was conducted in America among Christians who regularly attend church in the USA. This is what they were asked, have you heard of the Great Commission? 51% of Christians said, no, I have not heard of the Great Commission. And 25% said they could recall it, but they weren't really sure what it was all about. That's quite a big proportion, 76%. I mean, I'm no mathematician, but hey, I'm pretty good at adding those two numbers together. Now, I also want you to know there is no shame in not knowing much about the Great Commission. I mean, that's, that's why we're here together, to learn, to grow, to open God's Word together. So I'm going to share with you a wee bit about what the Great Commission is and kind of unfold that this morning. And, and essentially, you need to know the Great Commission was some of the last words that Jesus gave his first followers. So it's recorded uh, by one of his biographers, a guy called Matthew. And the context is Jesus had just endured this excruciating death on the cross. And three days, uh, he's been dead, he's been buried, and then he's miraculously raised to life. He has conquered the grave. And so after proving to his followers that he's, that he's not a ghost, that he has flesh and blood, he's a real person, he gives this responsibility to them to continue his message. So I'm going to read the Great Commission uh, with you, to you. It's in Matthew chapter 28, if you want to follow along. This is what we read. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the Great Commission is significant on a number of levels. First up, it's the very words of Jesus. It's what he charges his followers with. So if we, if we want to follow in his footsteps, then we've got to heed his call. We've got to follow his command. But on top of that, the Great Commission is, is part of this grand story that God is writing across the pages of human history. And so I just want to trace that arc a little bit of the Great Commission and show how sharing his message is part of God's plan for his world. And you actually might be interested to know that the roots of the Great Commission run all the way back to the beginning, to the opening chapter of the Bible when God creates the world. This is what we read. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created human beings in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So this is right in the beginning. Right in the very beginning, God gives what commentators have called the creation mandate. This responsibility. He entrusts the first people to be good stewards, to cultivate and care for the resources that God has given them to expand, to enhance his blessings to the whole world. And so they've got a job to do. And, and people, we like having a job to do. We like to know what we've got to do and like getting it done. But if you are familiar with the story, you know that the first people screwed up. They rebelled against God, sin entered the world, and everything changed. But God's vision did not change. He still had a heartbeat for people and places that he'd created. He wanted to see them thrive and wanted to see them flourish. So centuries after that creation mandate, God gives another mission to a man called Abraham. And this is what we read, Genesis chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the nation that I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you and make you famous, and you'll be a blessing to others. I'll bless those who curse you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Now this is again another really pivotal text in the Bible. Scholars have given this one another cool name. They've called it the Abrahamic Covenant. And so basically God makes this conditional agreement with Abraham. If Abraham is obedient to God's call, if, if he's willing to go, then God promises to bring blessings to him, to his family, and to the whole world. Now, if you fast forward a few thousand years to now, you could be forgiven for being a little sceptical about the results of this promise. I mean, if you look at our news headlines, the world is pretty messed up at times, right? You know, we've got nations at war with each other, millions of people are displaced from their homeland, millions more go hungry every day, uh, there's government corruption, economic inequality, substance abuse is at record levels, post-pandemic, there's anxiety, depression that's just increasing, and that's just globally, I mean, you know, what about locally, what even about personally? Those are some heavy things, and, and life is clearly not easy, it doesn't always feel like a blessing sometimes. But I want you to see that from the earliest times, God has a heartbeat for all people, for the whole world. And his heart aches to see the devastation and the destruction that people inflict upon themselves and upon others. God is deeply saddened by war, deeply saddened by oppression and by abuse. That is not how things were meant to be. And so this Abrahamic covenant reveals God's desire to turn things around. If Abraham would go, then God promises that things would be better. So, according to the record, Abraham responds to the call. He goes. He's 75 years old when he steps out. He leaves his native country, his relatives, his father's family, and he sets out for this unknown land around 2,000 kilometers away. Now, just as a kind of point of reference, that's, that's the length of State Highway 1 from Bluff to Cape Ranga from the bottom of the South Island to the top of the North Island. That's how far he had to travel. It's an extraordinary act of faith. 
And so if you know Jewish history, you'll know that uh, after Abraham steps out, for the following centuries, his descendants flip-flop. They go back and forth. At times they obey God and experience his blessings. Other times they disobey God and they experience the hardship and the suffering. Now this is where genealogy kicks in. Because, because one of those branches of Abraham's family tree is a direct link to Jesus. So Christians believe that Jesus is the one and only Son of God, that he was born into this world to bring us ultimate blessing, to give us a life of freedom and fullness with God. And so one of the first century followers of Jesus was a guy called Paul, and he wrote a letter to explain to his fellow Jews the link between Abraham and Jesus, and how that blessing that was promised to Abraham is available to all people, not just the Jews. So flick forward to Galatians chapter six, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter three, and this is what we read. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles, that's anyone a non-Jew, right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. So I really want you to get that this promise that Jesus offers to those who put their faith in him, to those who believe that he is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do, they are blessed. They are, they are put right with God. And this is not an exclusive offer. This is not only available to a select few. You don't have to be a particular part of an ethnic group. You don't have to have a certain socioeconomic level. The good news of Jesus is that it is open to everyone. And so actually later in his letter, Paul highlights the blessings of belonging to Jesus. He says, if you belong to Jesus, that strips away all our differences and our division. Look, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, no longer slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just reflect on that for a second. How radical that is. How refreshing that is for a world that is divided and distressed. Unity in Jesus bringing us together is so countercultural. And it's a, a massive response to the doom and gloom that we read in the news headlines. It is, it is the opposite, it is, it is good news. And the message of Jesus is good news. In fact, that, that word, that phrase has commonly been translated as gospel. Now look really closely at the beginning of that word. What do you see? Go. The first part of the gospel is a call to go. It is, it is a call for every Christian to go and share that good news to help bring God's blessings to the world. And you can trace that thread all the way through, through human history. Down through the centuries, God has called his people to go. We already saw Abraham, how he was called to go to the land that God would show him. Or Moses, one of the most famous leaders of the Jewish people, despite his objections that he wasn't very good with words, he was still called to go by God. Or some of the famous prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, some of the ancient Jewish prophets, all of them were called to go. Even Paul, the first missionary to the non-Jewish people, he was called to go 
And that's just a select few. I mean, Joshua, Ruth, Samuel, David, Isaiah, and countless others that are recorded in the Bible, they were all called to go, to take that message of God's grace and his truth to a world that desperately needed to hear some good news. And I think that invitation, I think that instruction is just as relevant today as it was all those centuries ago. Our world needs to know some good news. And the only way it's going to know is if we are willing to go. So let me pick up the story of uh, the New Zealand Baptists again. 1885, a handful of those Baptist churches made a commitment to follow Jesus' invitation to pursue the Great Commission. And then the next year, a call went out across the country. Were there any people willing to go overseas to do mission work? The New Zealand Baptists uh, had a particular focus on the province of Bengal, which was in the eastern part of the Indian Empire, and they'd heard that there was uh, social conditions, spiritual conditions, which were just really oppressive, very difficult, especially for Bengali women. So, in 1886, two young women from Hanover Street Baptist Church in Dunedin, which is now known as Dunedin City Baptist Church, two young women volunteered to go. Unfortunately, one of those young women uh, had to withdraw, but the other stayed the course, and her name was Rosalie McGeorge. Now, she was 27 years old when she volunteered. She was single, she was a trained teacher, and she had a heart for the poor and the suffering and a deep love, particularly for children. So after Rosalie said, yep, I'm able to go, the plans fell into place pretty quickly. She boarded a boat and sailed out of the Dunedin Harbour on the 28th of September, 1886. And her departure was a hugely historic moment. So Rosalie was the first New Zealand Baptist missionary sent overseas. She was the first woman sent by any New Zealand church for missionary work. And she was also the first missionary sent further than the Pacific. So a pioneering, amazing young woman. And before she left, she was prayed for by her church in Dunedin. And uh, on that occasion, the, uh, during his message, the minister noted that the task she was undertaking was going to be hard and exhausting. She would have to adapt to a different climate and a new culture. She would have to learn a new language, new customs. She would experience frustration, confusion, loneliness, disappointment. But despite all that, the minister encouraged her that it would be so worth it because God was with her. This is what he said, Go, and the assurance that his presence yields. Go in simple faith in the power of the gospel of his love. Go, your heart over-brimming with love to all on whom his love is set and for whom his blood was shed. So shall the blessing of the Lord Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost rest upon you forever. So after eight weeks, eight weeks at sea, uh, Rosalie arrived in Kolkata in India and she knuckled down to learn the language. She wanted to understand formal Bengali, but she also wanted to learn the language of every day so she could freely converse with the common people. So after two years of study, she had learned enough to be able to speak and to write Bengali to an acceptable language. And to develop her language skills, she would often visit women in their homes and talk. And uh, that kind of meant she was bombarded with a whole bunch of questions 
uh, questions that she was asked included what type of soap did she use, uh, how did she style her hair, what colour were the soles of her feet, uh, other funny questions like that. But she also was asked questions about Christianity, and in that she was able to share Bible stories, particularly with the women and children using her, ben using her Bengali language skills. Well, not long after that, she uh, set up an English class for children, using Bible stories as the main teaching content. And soon the children were more interested in the Bible than they were in learning the English language. And over the course of the first six months, she taught 100 children, and several of those inquired about Christianity. This kind of raised the opposition of some Muslim men in the area she was working. And they were quite aggressive and quite intimidating, but Rosalie quietly and bravely stood her ground. She continued to visit women in the homes and teach them Christian truths. And it wasn't easy going. Rosalie experienced all the difficulties that were predicted by her pastor. She had periods of ill health, loneliness. She knew frustration and, and, and saw the lack of opportunities and the oppression that the woman suffered. But there was encouraging progress in it. One woman, one Indian woman, was facing a number of worries and she began praying to Jesus instead of her traditional Hindu gods. Another woman said that she believed in Jesus and that her husband thought the Bible was a true book. And over time, there were others, a couple here or another there, who expressed their willingness to believe. So things were looking promising. In January 1891, Rosalie wrote a letter home, said that she had just recently recovered from an illness and she was ready for another year of work. And then in March, she contracted a fever and became quite unwell. Despite the best efforts of her doctor, she passed away on the 12th of April, 1891. She was 31 years old. She'd been in the on the mission field for four and a half years. But you know, those seeds of faith that Rosalie McGeorge planted in, late in the 19th century have been watered and nurtured and have lasted almost 140 years. There's been six generations of partnership between the New Zealand Baptist Missionary Society and the people of Southeast Asia. And that legacy, that lineage, is something that we can be proud of because that is part of our family tree. In fact, that family tree is actually still growing. So from those handful of converts in the 1880s, it's estimated there's almost one million Christians in the area that Rosalie McGeorge worked in now. Now, um, there's been a couple of updates over that 140 years' time. So the New Zealand Baptist Missionary Society has recently changed its name to Arutahi, and in Tereo, that means to work together as one, to have a, a singular focus for the future. And one of the missions that Aratahi uh, currently supports is a group called Joya. It's a collective of, of several operations working in Kolkata, and they are committed to transforming people's lives. So they provide things like clean drinking water, they uh, offer free medical clinics and social worker support, they give education to over 200 children and adults. They give legal advice, financial assistance. They provide housing for people. They offer social recreational activities for um, around 500 kids. And one of the most significant things they do is provide jobs for women as an alternative to working in the sex trade. So we're just going to watch a little quick video clip about this, and then I'm going to explain a couple of things uh, as we finish up. Thanks, Ron. 
Where will I go? Where can God use me? Do I have the courage to leave my home, my comfortable space, and go out? Our earliest global workers had the same fears and doubts about sensing God's call into the unknown. But they courageously went, and they lay the foundations for a long-term partnership with our global brothers and sisters. They saw that there was so much to give and so much to learn in this relationship. They committed to each other for the long haul. They committed to seeing change through the generations. The call hasn't changed. Have relationship. Learn. Give. Teach. Receive. Stay. Commit. Commit to seeing change over generations because God's story is a long one. I am a market when you go or when you give, you're part of a legacy of change. You write the next pages of the story that spans generations. When you wear your wristband, remember your part in the story of change. Will you make the commitment? I recognise that you know, the commitment to uproot and go overseas is a pretty big call, right? <clears throat> and maybe God is calling some of us to that, but <clears throat> even if he's not calling you to necessarily go overseas, he's still calling all of us to go. And your go might be to your elderly parents or your children, your friends, your neighbours, your workmates, your associates, perhaps someone who's vulnerable and marginalised, perhaps someone who's wealthy and powerful, perhaps the athletic or the creative or the artistic or the skilled, everybody on our planet needs to hear the message of Jesus. And all of us have a people and a place that God is calling us to go to fulfill that great commission. So I very simply want to encourage you, friends, to go. To go, to share that light, that life, that love of Jesus, to bring fullness 
and freedom to a weary uh, world. So we're going to sing a final song together, and um, it's a, a kind of an encouragement and affirmation that we are willing to go to where God would have us go. And uh, during that song, if you, want, if you want to, you're welcome to go to the back table. There's a little wristband you saw on the video as an encouragement, a reminder that you are part of a family tree. You have a legacy, you have a history, and you have a part to play in that great commission. So when you're ready, feel free to do that. Thanks. Would you like to stand with us?